What's going on, guys? Mitch from RespectMyRegion.com, back with another North American Weed Tour podcast episode. Episode 48. Today, I have Kevin Frender, Chief Science Officer of Black Dog LED, joining us. How are you doing today, Kevin? Pretty good. How are you? And I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, man. So first off, to get this started, I would love to just get a little bit of your history and, you know, surrounding this industry and the plant, man. What, 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 where you been and, and what's brought you to this point? I've had a, as I think most people in this industry uh, have, it's been an interesting road to get here. Um, I've always been interested in plants, uh, started growing plants when I was three years old, uh, started growing plants indoors under artificial lights when I was six years old. Not cannabis plants, but uh, pretty much every other kind of plant you can think of, I've tried to grow. And that's actually what landed me in uh, Black Dog LED because I always just has a hobby, grew ridiculous numbers of tropical plants. I've got tropical fruit trees growing in my basement, literally things like mangoes and guavas, and um, had tried out every kind of light on the market, uh, even tried out some LEDs, was generally disappointed with the LEDs. And then I saw Black Dog LED hanging in my local hydro shop with a 90-day money-back guarantee. And... Within six months, I'd quit my other job and joined Black Dog LED because that light worked so much better than everything else I'd tried for 20 years before. That is incredible to go from a customer to then joining the team just because you love the product that much. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. In Colorado, you're in Colorado. There's probably not too many people that are growing tropical plants in, the, in their basement. Not tropical fruit trees in their basement. There's some hobbyists growing orchids and things like that, but there's uh, there's very few of us in Colorado, but I'm not the only one growing weird things like mangoes at home. <laughs> so for that, you know, over the years, obviously through you know cannabis legalization and the you know at home grow becoming much more of a mainstream topic in gen for cannabis in general. How how did you initially find I guess education and information about just growing plants in general at home? Well. A lot of the information that was available in terms of growing plants under lights specifically either came out of the underground cannabis growers that were experimenting with stuff. Um, and a lot of that advice, uh, I mean, people were sharing what they, they could and, and doing what research they could, but at the same time, it wasn't uh, being really done at a professional level. And then I mean, back when I got started in the hobby, there was really only choices between fluorescent, high-pressure sodium, and metal halide. Those were your three choices. So it's, for most people that are trying to grow tropical plants indoors, they're looking to grow things like African violets or low-light orchids where you could get away with fluorescent lights. Mm. But I was trying to grow things like mango trees, and that requires a lot more light. So uh, luckily, I mean, on the early days of the internet, you could find information from underground cannabis growers, and I tried to adapt a lot of of what they were doing, but mangoes have slightly different light needs or life cycle needs, not necessarily light needs, but life cycle needs than cannabis. So a lot of what was presented as good information out there applied to cannabis, but not necessarily to other plants. Mm. And so from that transition of just growing, you know, tropical plants in general to now working obviously in a sector where you got supply lighting for cannabis, what, what were some of the obstacles that and hurdles it took to kind of gain information to, of that process and how that plant reacts to light? Well, I mean, for example, for a very long time in the cannabis uh, growers' minds, you need blue light for veg and you need red light for flower. And we see that being repeated 
even today, I mean, there are LED grow lights that have switches or spectral controls on the side where you put it in, in spring mode to, for vegetative growth for the cannabis plants, and that has a lot more blue in the spectrum. And then you put it in fall mode for uh, flowering, which has a lot more red in the spectrum. The problem is the sun is at exactly the same position in the sky in the spring and the fall. It is exactly the same color. It is not getting more red in fall than it is in spring. So cannabis growers got a little confused along the way, and I can see how they did it. Uh, because back when basically metal halide and high pressure sodium were your really only high power options, uh, one of them clearly worked much better for vegetative growth. If you try and, and vegetatively grow under high pressure sodium, you end up with lanky plants that uh, have really long spaces between the stems that tend to break their stems and fall over. They just don't vegetatively grow as well. And uh, yet when growers tried to flower with the metal halide lights that, that uh, vegetatively grew very well, they'd only get half the yield. The quality might even have been slightly better, but they'd only get half the yield. So they made the association in their mind that, oh, you need blue light for veg and you need red light for flower. What they didn't really understand is that high pressure sodium lights are about twice as efficient at metal halide lights as just pumping out photons per watt. So that's why they were getting twice the yield with the high pressure sodium lights in flower. But high pressure sodium lights, because they basically lack any blue light in the spectrum, they trigger a hormonal response in plants. And it's not just cannabis plants, it's pretty much all higher land plants. And this evolved a long time ago. Basically, plants think that if I'm not seeing enough blue light, I'm not seeing blue sky, therefore something must be up above me, shading me out. And so that triggers a hormonal response to stretch those stems. And it doesn't matter how bright the light is, it purely has to do with the ratio of red light to blue light and red light to far red light. And high pressure sodium lights automatically trigger that. You can get away with that with cannabis plants because it's only the first three or so weeks of flower that the stems are still growing. And you can tolerate that excess stretching for the first three weeks of flower, but then they stop growing their stems. But that's how people got misunderstood in terms of thinking that you need to switch the spectrum or that one spectrum is better than the other for veg or flower, when in reality, the sun doesn't really change color in the sky and plants actually stall out when you do change the color of light that they're receiving. So I was finding in my basement where I'm not trying to, to uh, grow plants that have a distinct photo period difference, that if I did change the spectrum on them, they would stop growing on me for a while and I wouldn't get the yields of, of mangoes or, or berries that I was expecting. So I was seeing the results that you don't wanna change spectrum uh, but cannabis growers, when you only had a choice between metal halide and high pressure sodium, one was clearly better for veg and the other was better for flour. So that's what they used. But they also then let that trick them into thinking you need to change the spectrum. When in fact, we've found repeatedly over more than 11 years now, if you give cannabis plants the same light spectrum, the same color from veg all the way through flour, you actually end up with a higher yield and a faster harvest. And that, I, that can make complete sense. You know, your analogy of the sun's position and the color of the sun, it, it, it definitely doesn't change, right? Maybe the hours of sun clearly change, um, you know, based on season and especially on where you're at on, on the earth. But that makes complete sense. Um, and, and I get, you know, obviously pre-legalization, you know, like you said, information was very sparse, which made education very sparse. And someone would try something and get some sort of results. And then everyone would necessarily copy and paste that without necessarily, 
you know, fully A-B testing or looking at the science behind it. And so, you know, obviously for a while, and we kind of alluded to it on there, like LED lights were, you know, looked down upon in cannabis. And we've seen this, this surge of the last few years where a lot of people are starting to move to LEDs. What do you think, what do you think was kind of the reasoning behind this switch over to LEDs? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. Um, one is, you know, 10, 12 years ago, 12, 13 years ago now, when I started looking at LEDs myself, a lot of the problem was LEDs simply weren't bright enough yet. Um, it, they weren't as efficient at pumping out photons as a high pressure sodium light. So if you wanted a lot of light without using a lot of electricity, high pressure sodium still worked better. Uh, but it triggers this hormonal response where you can't grow a mango tree in your basement with a high pressure sodium. It, it just, it'll grow itself to death before it fruits. Um, so the early adopters, the people that tried LED lights didn't get great results. They may have worked well for low light plants like African violets, but for high light plants like cannabis, unfortunately they were being sold and marketed as, hey, you can grow any plant with this. And it's true, you can grow a plant with it, just not very well. <laughs> and so people were being deceived, unfortunately, early on in the industry. And it's really only when the power of LEDs started getting up there that uh, they became more widely adopted. Unfortunately, their bad reputation is still pervasive in the industry because so many people were lied to, unfortunately, mm -hmm. for so long. But there's two aspects to uh, what makes LED lights really wonderful for the cannabis industry and for plant growth in general. And that is now they're way more efficient than high pressure sodium. There's no question you can get more photons per watt out of an LED than a high pressure sodium bulb. And they last longer and they require less cooling and there's all sorts of benefits there. But the really interesting thing is, unlike with high pressure sodium where the spectrum or the color of light you're getting out of it is fixed. You can't really change it more than about 5% here or there. With LEDs, we can actually play around and give the plants different ratios of different colors of light to actually make them do what we want them to do. Mm. For the first time, we can actually play with their plant hormones based on their responses to these different colors of lights to do things like say, hey, we don't want your stems. We don't want your leaves. We want you to be spending your energy growing flowers and fruits. And that's what's really becoming better. The, the standard off the shelf white LED grow light at this point is better than a high pressure sodium uh, in almost all circumstances. So that's what's starting to get the adoption rate up. But as people discover that, hey, you can even do better than these all white LEDs, that's what's really going to drive the second LED revolution in the cannabis industry. So we're, so we're just on the cusp of that. So you're saying you can actually almost like you're saying program the lights to go through the cycle. Like you're saying not deprive certain spectrums or have to switch the lights, but give the plants kind of a different experience at different stages of growth to get them, like you said, to kind of respond to what you're trying to do with the plant. Not necessarily at different stages of growth, but by giving them the same color or spectrum of light throughout their growth, we can do things uh, to the plant that makes them behave differently. So for example, I used the earlier uh, analogy or information about high pressure sodium triggering that stem lengthening response. And that happens throughout the plant's life cycle. It just happens in cannabis plants that they stop growing their stems period when they get about three weeks into flower. 
most strains anyhow. We've encountered some that <laughs> seem to never stop growing, but those typically don't get grown indoors for that very reason. Mm. Um, but by triggering the opposite response, by telling the plant, hey, you've got plenty of blue sky, you don't need to stretch your stems, we can actually make the plants grow shorter stems than they would even outdoors under natural sunlight. And that leaves them with more energy to pump into the flowers. So we can actually make a plant that's even more compact than it would be under full sunlight outside and even more productive than it would be under full sunlight outside. Hmm. Uh, in addition, for example, there are different colors of light that are more efficient for uh, leaves to absorb and to actually photosynthesize with. Yellow light in particular is less efficient. It's not that plants can't grow with it. High pressure sodium lights prove you can grow plants with yellow light. But that yellow light is heating up their leaves more than other colors of light. And if you think about it, if you have a, a plant that you're growing under a high pressure sodium and your room gets up to 85 degrees, your plant is toast. It mm. just got overheated. And yet you can take that same plant and put it under full sunlight and it can tolerate 110 degrees just fine. And that's because high pressure sodium is abnormally heating up the leaves with that excess of yellow light and it's causing the plants to overheat. Whereas if you give the plants less yellow light and give them more of the light that they efficiently use for photosynthesis, the red and the blue light in the spectrum, we can actually keep their leaf temperature down so that we can actually bombard them with even more light to increase production even more. Wow, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty incredible. Um, how much of that, like, tailoring the lighting is based on the specific strain or is it the specific room or grow environment like i'm sure both of those are variables that go into that but which one how much like what percentage do you feel like it's room and environment versus like the particular type of plant um it it doesn't come down to the particular type of plant or strain as much as what do you want out of that plant mm. so i can tailor a light spectrum that will cause the leaves to grow very large uh, at the expense of stems, fruit, and flowers. But if you're growing something like lettuce, that might be what you want, is to encourage leaf growth over everything else. Um, I can encourage stem growth. High-pressure sodium is awesome for that. If you're growing celery and you want the stems, high-pressure sodium is what you want to grow with. But for plants where we want their flowers or their fruit, there's a different spectrum that we can use to encourage them to have more flowers and fruit at the expense of their leaves or their stems, the parts of the plant that we aren't interested in harvesting. So it's not so much different strains as it is the actual product you want out of the plant. Um, and then as far as different environments or different rooms, really the only difference we're seeing there um, spectrum wise is whether or not you're looking to uh, use your lights for heat to help keep the plants warm or whether you're looking to uh, keep your plants as cool as you can. And typically in indoor agriculture, using your lights for heat is stupid because there are other cheaper sources of heat. You can burn natural gas and get way cheaper heat than you can by running electricity through a light and using the light to warm up your plants and your grow. So I don't see any reason why you would ever want your lights to actually be responsible for keeping your plants warm. And in the vast majority of cannabis growers operations, other than at nighttime when the lights aren't on, you're typically using air conditioning to cool the room rather than trying to heat it up. So the less heat 
we put into the room, the better. The cooler we keep the plant's leaves, the, the warmer you can keep the room without overheating your plants. And in fact, for example, with our spectrum, we actually recommend and get best yields when people keep their ambient room temperature at about 85 degrees, which would fry a, a plant under high pressure sodium, but that's where we get our best yields with cannabis plants under our light spectrum. So it's not really different strain to strain. We have done lots and lots of tests, indica heavy, sativa heavy, all sorts of different hybrids. We can make them do different things, but they all do the same thing with the same spectrum. We can make their, their stems longer if we want, but that's not what we want. We want more flowers out of them. And there's one spectrum that does that, whether it's indica or sativa. Hmm. That's super interesting. And so with you guys having roots in Colorado, which is, you know, the first state that, that had recreational cannabis for sale. And then obviously this last year we've seen last couple of years, we've seen countless new states come online. Are you, you feel like you see LED taking more prominent and replacing some of these older lighting systems in existing states? Or do you see you guys taking more of a, is it more aggressive grow, growth in new markets where people are just now setting up grows for the first time? Or is it a little bit, I mean, it's obviously probably a little bit of both. It's come around its full cycle. So we, we tried selling LED grow lights to commercial growers here in Colorado, but the upfront additional expense and everyone trying and scrambling to get their grow up for, as fast as possible, as cheap as possible. When Colorado flipped in 2013, I don't think there was a single grow using any LED lights anywhere. It was all high pressure sodium. And uh, because they had their infrastructure built up and because those facilities have been running for so long, they didn't really see a reason to upgrade or to change out their lights until the last couple of years. Last couple of years, we're starting to see enough saturation of growers in the marketplace here that they're having to start differentiating themselves through other things. How, how expensive is it for them to produce a pound of, of flour? And if you can get a pound of flour for less total infrastructure cost, less operational cost with an LED light, then it makes sense to do that so that you can outcompete your other competition here. The other thing we're seeing is a desire to increase the quality of flour mm. so that you can compete in the marketplace. And that's one thing, <coughs> excuse me, where LEDs can really help out as well. Uh, but for, for the past six or seven years, it's primarily been in the new states as they start legalizing that we've sold into a lot of the commercial grows because the grows that haven't been set up yet, a lot easier to get your lights in there initially rather than try and tell someone, oh, I realize you just bought these high pressure sodium lights two years ago, but right. go ahead and throw them out and replace them with our lights. Right, and that's something, and something that I, I stood out to me, you know, that I visited quite a bit of cultivation facilities in quite a bit of different states. Um, I'm not a cultivation expert by any means. You know, I'm an expert on the end product. <laughs> I'll claim that. But um, something that I that I consistently see is like cultivation facilities that swap the lights out in one room or one row and start testing it. And yep. you hear these growers express that like, God, I bought all these lights like three years ago, four years ago, and like the way this room's going, I gotta fucking throw everything out and, and switch them out. Is that something you guys are starting to see where someone's like, let me get a little taste test of this. And then they're just like, Man, now I got to swap it all. <laughs> we see that all the time and, and growers are very cautious. And unfortunately, especially with the LED grow light industry, deservedly so, because there have been a lot of just ridiculous claims over the years. Uh, 
there used to be 10 years ago a company that claimed that their 200 watt LED grow light would replace a thousand watt high pressure sodium in terms of light output. And that's not even physically possible. If you physically convert all of the energy in 200 watts, you're not going to get a thousand watts worth of high pressure sodium photons out. So, I mean, there there have been a lot of lies and uh, stretching the truth in the LED industry throughout the years. And it has made growers definitely timid and want to tiptoe and, and take those tests and make sure that they're making the right decision. So we see that all the time. And it's and it's also a saturated market. You know, I'm not even again, I'm not a cultivation guy. I have nothing to do with any cultivation licenses or brands. And I get hit up on LinkedIn just because I'm active in the cannabis community for LED lights at a very high rate. And they're not very quality outreach, you know, and I can tell the product isn't a quality thing. Is that something that you guys compete with or even continues that stigma that LED is a lower quality? All the time. And unfortunately, people are price conscious and deservedly so. Um, and when someone contacts you, it's typically out of China or maybe it's some small startup company here in the US that's reselling lights they're buying from China. But if someone tells you, hey, I've got this brand new top of the line, highest technology grow light, and it's half as expensive as these other companies, people get fooled into buying those and they don't realize that a, our eyes are actually very bad at, at discerning differences in brightness between different lights. Um, and B, just because it works right now doesn't mean it was engineered properly to continue working down the line. And we see all the time where companies will start selling lights and within six months they'll be out of business and they no longer honor their warranty because all of their lights weren't engineered to actually last. And unfortunately, it, with LEDs, it does cost quite a bit more to engineer them properly to ensure that the lights actually last. And I would say the average age of an LED grow light company on the market right now is probably under a year old. Mm. And it's not because all of them just popped up in the last year. It's that they make cheap stuff that breaks. And, and rather than um, changing that, they just keep reselling the same stuff and when when they can't honor their warranty anymore, they shut down that company and start up a brand new one in a different name that sells the same stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've, I've seen that business model across a couple different industries. Um, that, that's an important thing to know. And I think, you know, it's crazy to me that the average cannabis cultivator has a hard time grasping that you get what you pay for. Because when it comes to, again, as a consumer, the first time I smoke good weed, you know, really good weed that obviously cost damn near twice as much as the weed I was buying previously. I was like, I'm never going back. And I don't care that it costs as much. I can't, I just, my palate won't let me go back. So it's weird that we come from a culture of that, but then it's tough for us to grasp that, you know, that same concept in other realms. Well, I think a lot of that is still left over from the underground growing days where you never knew as a grower if you were going to get raided, if all of your equipment was going to be seized. So why spend twice as much on something that's guaranteed to last five years versus just paying a couple hundred bucks for something that uh, will work it well enough for the next year and who knows whether you're going to continue and, and still be growing in a year. So I think a lot of that mentality is still a holdover from the pre-legalization days. Absolutely. And so for you guys, you know, I'd, I'd like to, to understand a little bit of the process of the scenario of like, you know, say I'm a customer, I come to you guys, I want to get fitted 
you know, I want my cultivation facility for lights. How do you guys work with them? Do you traditionally just, they order lights or do you guys go out and kind of look at facilities and understand, I mean, obviously I'm sure it depends on the scope of the facility and the, and the job, but how much involved are you guys in looking at their space and helping consult on here's what we think that you guys need or is it more them inquiring, this is our need, X amount of lights or X amount of square feet? We're heavily involved. Even when people contact us and say, hey, I need 400 lights, we will back them up and say, okay, let's make sure you need 400 lights because sometimes they'll actually only need 200 lights. And yeah, it would have been nice if we sold them twice as many as they needed, but we want our customers to succeed. And um, sometimes people think, hey, I, I need 400 lights and maybe that'll work for half of their facility, but really if they did try and spread everything out, they're gonna get poor results from everything we don't want to see people failing with our lights. So we're there all the way from uh, helping with facility design. Um, if you have an existing building, we can get the specifications from you in terms of room sizes. We can get light maps made to show you what we would recommend. Uh, working with uh, different ceiling heights, different uh, layouts in terms of benches and aisleways and things like that. Give growers the recommendations that they need to actually succeed. And then we even go beyond that and help with uh, basically consulting advice that has nothing to do with lighting. But our growers may call us up and say, hey, the lights are working great, but now I've got russet mites. What do you recommend? What have you heard that works well? So we're here for not just the sale, but also well beyond that to make sure that our customers succeed. Because for 11 years, I mean, as you pointed out before, LEDs had a bad reputation in the market for a very long time. The only way we've succeeded and continued growing the company for 11 years is through word of mouth from our happy customers. Mm -hmm. That's important for, you know, building any sort of business, right? You have a good customer, they're going to put other people on. And I'm sure you guys have seen some challenges with, you know, cultivation facilities, whether people, you know, sometimes people are graced to be able to build something out from scratch, but a lot of times what I've seen is someone acquiring some form of, you know, sh stick built metal shed or, you know, an old 1920s brick building and building it out. What have you, I'm sure you have, do you have any horror stories that come to mind? Oh facilities? yeah, so our very first large commercial facility got set up and running in Oregon. It uh, was August. They got the lights. We were able to get up there in, I think, October for the first time to see it. And it was just a metal building, no insulation. And the guy didn't realize that at night it, it freezes enough that it gets cold enough that it could freeze inside his building. And he had no accommodation for heat and his first crop froze on him, which put him in dire financial straits, which then meant that he needed to... Uh, sell equipment to continue funding the, the build out and basically he ended up failing because he didn't think about that one little aspect to his grow to begin with and that's why that's when we learned the very hard lesson of we need to not just tell people what lights they need but also check out other things to make sure they've thought about them to ensure that they're going to succeed to the best of our ability Right, because if they're a success story, again, attributed to your lights or not, lights aren't the only thing that's going to make it successful. But if they're a success story, other people want to know what they're doing or copy and paste that. They might scale their business or, like you said, they'll, they'll pass that word of mouth. What are some of those other aspects, you know, outside of lighting that 
are that you find are just really instrumental to having a quality product? Okay, one mistake that we see uh, growers setting up these commercial facilities make is making their rooms too large. I know that it costs more to have additional walls put in and, and subdivide your area. And it may seem like, oh, I can just have one giant flower room, but they, and that may work when you were an underground grower and you had 10 lights, you may have been able to keep them all in one room and, and handle that. But if you have a thousand lights in one room and you have a spider outbreak or a spider mite outbreak in one corner of that, now you've got tens of thousands of plants and tens of thousands of square feet of plants you have to treat and it becomes a nightmare. I mean, we've even seen one of the Canadian licensed producers basically fall flat on their face for that exact reason. They had one giant non-subdivided greenhouse oh. and when they had an outbreak of pathogens in one corner of it, they couldn't stop it and they lost millions of dollars of crop all at once. So that's one of the main things we try and advise people is it doesn't make sense to just have one giant room. There's literally no firewalls in there, nothing to prevent a fire or insects or bacteria, mold, whatever from spreading to your entire crop. Plus, if you're thinking that you're going to harvest all of that at once <laughs> and take care of it all at once, we've seen facilities where literally they, they had a wonderful crop everything was looking great came time for harvest and they realized they couldn't get it cut down fast enough mm. and so they had some stuff rotting in one corner because it had been piled up and they're mm. still trying to take care of the plants and harvest them so they don't lose it and then it becomes overripe and so there's all sorts of stupid ways that you wouldn't necessarily think about that you can fail simply by failing to plan and think all of the different aspects through it's not just I need to get a bunch of lights up and grow a bunch of plants. You also need to think about the whole process and even just the regular work schedule that you're going to have of, okay, I'm, I'm harvesting this room one week and then this room the next week and this room the following week. Because if you suddenly need to bring in a hundred workers all at once to help you harvest and then the next week you don't need but four workers, it's a really difficult thing to find that sort of workforce in a lot of areas. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that I've, you know, I've noticed, again, just from so many cultivation facilities I go to, the guys who, the guys and gals that are putting out product that I associate with the very quality that I, that my palate prefers, tends to, even, no matter the size it grow, their grow rooms are, you know, much smaller. Do you have an ideal range that, that you like to see grow rooms stay in? I mean, I'm sure, again, there's variables based on height, what, what building you're working at, but is there a size that you don't like to see rooms go much bigger than? I mean, there's a range of sizes. It also depends on, on a bunch of different factors, but I would say if your grow rooms are, are more than about uh, 2,000 square feet, they're probably too large. Uh, we like to see the room stay smaller than that. Uh, you know, a thousand square foot room is still pretty darn large for a flower room. And uh, it it's additional work, it's additional cost up front to build the building out to have smaller rooms, but it makes it so much easier to control what's going on in that room. And it's not just outbreaks of pathogens, it's, you know, the ability to for one person to check every plant in that room so if they notice something they can look for it on all the other plants in that room rather than just telling someone else hey i i saw 
this and that back corner plant, look for it. Well, without having seen it yourself, you may not know what to look for. And so having it at a scale where one person can take care of a room, even if they're not doing that same room all the time, uh, I think is, is ideal. Plus there's other silly things like air movement within the room. If the walls start getting too far away, sometimes it becomes a challenge to move all the air and, and keep the air an equal temperature and humidity throughout the room and you end up with dead pockets where the humidity gets too high and that's where you start growing powdery mildew and having issues so and then also just consistency right if one one part of your room's getting an optimal environment and you know other parts are getting varying degrees of of that that standard that you'd like to see all of them hit then your end product right is going to vary from from plant to plant yep absolutely and I think people also don't realize how much of a pain it is to deal with 10 different strains growing in one room because every strain is going to require slightly different uh, care, whether it's, hey, this one just grows six inches taller, so we needed to put the scrog netting six inches higher on, on this area, or this one's drinking slightly faster, so we need to uh, keep those uh, plants watered on a different schedule from the rest of the plants. If you're mixing those in one room, it starts getting more and more difficult. The more different strains you've got going in one room at one time, the more difficult it is to keep tra uh, track of that room and to keep that room as optimal as it can be. Whereas if you only have one or two strains per flower room at a time, that makes it pretty easy to keep track of what's going on in there. Abs no, absolutely. And that's, you know, another thing that I commonly see, you know, without having all this information myself, but you see guys that only grow a couple strains per room and they match them up based on, this, you know, their grow cycle. And then like what you're saying, the height, just matching them up so it makes sense in that room rather than throwing things in there that are completely, you know, completely different. Yeah. Um, you know, we touched on a little bit earlier of some of the benefits of LEDs, but, but if you could go a little bit, you know, backtrack and cover that again, like, LEDs impact on yield in plants because that's obviously at the end of the day any cannabis farmer wants to increase their yield. I mean that's their money, their out their output. What what all are the ways? And I know we covered it a little bit, but what are the ways that LEDs really impact yield specifically? So there's a number of different ways of looking at yield as well. There's total yield from your facility. There's yield per square foot. There's yield per watt, and different facilities are going to want to examine yield in different ways because uh, and, and in some states for example you're limited on plant count so then yield per plant actually matters but it gets really complicated because i can grow monster plants i can get 20 pounds off a plant but if it took me all year to veg that plant up to that size i could have harvested six other harvests or five other harvests in that period and you have to do the math to see whether it really made sense to get that massive yield from one plant or whether you would have been better off growing smaller plants and harvesting them more frequently. But with LEDs specifically, uh, now that they're actually far more efficient than high pressure sodium, at least the higher quality LEDs are now far more efficient than high pressure sodium, you can actually get more yield per watt uh, because LEDs are simply able to put out more photons that the plants can use for photosynthesis. Luckily for us, for all of us, um, LEDs also have a fundamentally better spectrum. Even the, the white LEDs, the so-called full spectrum LEDs, 
that were actually designed for human eyes, not for plants, not for plant growth at all. They were designed for human eyes. And so human eyes are actually most sensitive to light in the yellow and the green area of the spectrum. So white LEDs were actually designed to put out most of their light in the yellow and green area of the spectrum. Well, yellow light isn't the most efficient for plants to grow with. They can grow with it. Same thing with green light. It's not the most efficient for them to grow with. But if you're still bombarding them with more photons than the high pressure sodium at the same wattage, your yield is going to go up. But the white LEDs actually do have significantly more blue in their spectrum than high pressure sodium. And that actually helps keep the plants a little bit more compact than under high pressure sodium. That more compact uh, nature means their stems are shorter. That means the plants have to push nutrients and water through shorter stems, less energy there. They don't have to spend as much energy growing those stems. So they've got more energy left over for flowers. So the spectrum of, of these white LEDs is also fundamentally better than high pressure sodium and you get a higher yield per watt that way as well. Um, secondly, high pressure sodium lights have a distinct spike in their spectral output well outside of our visual range in the infrared area of the spectrum. Um, and if you've ever been under a high pressure sodium light, you notice that distinctly as you feel like you're under a heat lamp because you're being bombarded by basically a heat lamp that's putting out a bunch of infrared radiation that's just serving to heat up you and the plants in the room. With LEDs, we can design them so that if we don't put those far infrared LEDs in there, then we don't have far infrared light and we're not heating up the plants for no reason whatsoever. So LEDs are fundamentally more efficient and they are fundamentally, the white LEDs at least, are fundamentally spectrally more efficient at growing plants. But we can then go one step beyond that and say, okay, rather than taking this white LED that was designed for human eyes and is perfect for human eyes, perfect for illuminating your room, for reading at night or for sports stadiums, it makes everything look really bright for us, but it's putting out most of its energy in the area of the spectrum where plants are least efficient at mm. picking it up. So if we can tweak the spectrum and incorporate more of the red, more of the blue, and then we even go beyond that and we actually incorporate ultraviolet light and infrared light, not far infrared, but near infrared light. Um, the near infrared light actually triggers a effect that was actually found back in the 1950s called the Emerson effect. It actually increases photosynthetic efficiency. It's one of those weird cases uh, in nature where one plus one equals something more than two. It's like one plus one equals 2.5. Um, if you give a plant a red photon that, that can be used for photosynthesis and you give them an infrared photon that by itself cannot be used for photosynthesis, the two together actually end up giving the plant more energy than two of the red photons alone would. Yeah. So we incorporate that near infrared uh, light that again, our eyes can't see. So it's not designed to be in the white LEDs because if our eyes can't see it, it's pointless putting it in a, a light designed for humans. And then same thing with the ultraviolet. Our eyes can't see it, so it's not in those so-called full-spectrum white LEDs. But we put in ultraviolet because plants react to ultraviolet light just like our skin does. When your skin is exposed to ultraviolet light, your body naturally produces more melanin. and It gives you a tan to help protect you from ultraviolet light. Well, plants produce natural compounds when they're exposed to ultraviolet light as well. And those include things like terpenes for more flavor, uh, 
they include things like anthocyanins, which are the purple or reddish pigments that give the buds that mm. beautiful purple color. And then most importantly, uh, cannabis plants also produce two compounds that are natural sunscreens called THC and CBD. They're natural sunscreen compounds and we can make the plants make more of them by giving the plants exposure to ultraviolet light. And this is something that is traditionally not incorporated in grow lights because if a person is looking at one light versus another, if you can't see that ultraviolet light, if you don't, you can't tell whether it's in there or not, and one light looks brighter because it's putting more energy towards photons I can see rather than some energy towards photons I can't see, people get tricked by that and they choose to go without UV. But that's actually what really got me into black dog LED, even before I was growing cannabis at all. Uh, it was really the first light that I tried that incorporated a significant amount of ultraviolet light. And the difference I saw in my flower and fruit production in my tropical plant room was staggering. Even though the LEDs themselves were putting out less total light than the ceramic metal halides I was using at the time, the plants liked it so much more. I got double the fruit production off of some of my plants. Um, I saw colors in orchids that I'd never seen before under artificial lights. And it turns out I was getting colors that you do see if you grow them outside under uh, full sunlight. But having only grown them under artificial light, I didn't know that they could make those flower colors. So the ultraviolet light does make a big difference, but it's completely lacking from most LED fixtures on the market because it's not seen by our eyes and because people are only interested in looking at efficiency numbers in terms of visible to our eyes, photons, if you put in photons that are invisible, it counts against you in your efficiency rating, even though it grows plants better. That's, 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 super, that's super, that's super interesting. interesting. So looking at, um, looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the difference of looking at data and research, what, how much do you guys look at numbers and measuring and like, you know, science data and how much is it of just physically being in there and looking at things, trying things out and like more hands-on approach? I'm sure you guys take both of those, but which one do you feel like is more important for you guys? We've really learned that it is important to look at both simultaneously because, uh, for example, if you're just looking at, at photon efficiency, uh, different colors of photons require different amounts of energy to create. Red photons have less energy, they take less energy to create. So if I'm just trying to design a light that is most efficient at pumping out photons, it's going to just have nothing but red photons. And you can grow a plant with that, but unfortunately without any blue photons, it's just going to grow its stems excessively and that's not what we want to grow the plant for. So it's important to actually have a real world check against that and test the light out and say, hey, did this really grow the plant better for what I want to grow the plant for? Um, and then there's other complicating factors such as, okay, I can bombard a plant with a certain level of light and it starts showing signs of, of light stress or heat stress. But that level of light that I was bombarding it with is not even looking at the spectrum of light that it was being bombarded with. So for example, with high pressure sodium lights, you can only give the plants so much light intensity before that excess yellow light starts overheating their leaves and you literally start cooking the leaves and turning them brown. Where I can actually give almost twice the light intensity if I change the spectrum of light so that it doesn't have that excess of yellow light. And in fact, if I 
have less than natural sunlight in terms of ratio of yellow light, I can give the plants even more light and still not have them have stress and that increases yield. So it's dangerous to look at only one thing, only one study, one scientific thing, because you don't really see the effect on the full plant growth in the field. That's why we actually have our very own research and development facility here in our office where we actually have a, a Colorado hemp license for growing hemp plants here, uh, completely analogous to cannabis plants in every way. And we use that to test out our lights and, and see the effects of different light spectrums, different light intensities, um, even sometimes different cultural practices and, and try and maximize yield that way. And I was going to ask about that, what you guys do for innovation and how you research that. So it sounds like you guys are doing that in-house. What What are some of the aspects of, or the, or the next steps of innovation in LEDs that you're kind of, whether it's just kind of on the cusp of it or you feel like are in the future, what, what are some of these next steps in innovation that you're most excited about? Well, we've seen LEDs get vastly more efficient over the past 10 years. Um, blue LEDs in particular have been getting incredibly more efficient over the past 10 years. And that's because most of the research and development uh, money in the LED industry, not the grow light industry, but the LED industry in general, has been towards maximizing the uh, efficiency of blue LEDs. And the reason for that is the white or full spectrum LEDs are really a blue LED that they put a layer of phosphors on top of that takes those blue photons, steals some energy from them, and re-releases them as lower energy uh, photons across the rest of the visual spectrum. And that is the most efficient way to make a small, powerful, single LED that is adequate for human vision and, and really is ideal for replacing all of those older lighting technologies for human use. So the blue LEDs have gotten significantly better over the past 10 years. In the past five years, we've started seeing companies like Osram uh, put a lot more investment into increasing the efficiency of red LEDs. And they didn't do it initially for uh, the horticulture industry. They were literally looking to make more efficient taillights for our cars. Now that rubbed off and we got better, higher efficiency red LEDs uh, that are suitable for horticulture as well. And so the blue LEDs and the red LEDs have started getting much, much more efficient. Uh, what we're at Black Dog really looking forward to, and we're starting to see it more and more, is some of those other color LEDs that we use, uh, the ultraviolet and the infrared, which are much more niche products in the LED industry as a whole, because they typically are specialty applications. I mean, if you can't see it, it's not going to get sold at Home Depot. Uh, it's not going to get put up in a sports stadium if you can't see the light. But there are still other applications and horticulture is actually starting to be one of the larger ones for some of these other colors of LEDs. I know at the beginning of COVID-19, we had a rush of people asking us if our ultraviolet light in our lights actually killed COVID-19. And um, unfortunately, we're not using that kind of, of ultraviolet. They're looking for sterilizing ultraviolet, the kind that you don't want to be exposed to because if it kills COVID-19, guess what? it's going to cause skin cancer for you too. So we don't want to incorporate those into our grow lights, but uh, just even the COVID-19 pandemic 
we've seen huge strides in the efficiency of those sterilizing ultraviolet C range LEDs because they are being used for sterilizing equipment a lot more and for uh, putting in air ducts so that you can sterilize the air that's flowing through in a building and knock the virus out. Man, that, uh, I love hearing about that innovation and these other light spectrums that and just their impact on the planet. I can tell you're very passionate about this. And, and if you're excited about that, again, me as an end consumer, I just want these the end product to continually get better and better and better. And it sounds like that's what the goal of that is. Um, yep. how, how much so how much of the emphasis do you really look at in terms of how the plant responds and then also that you know like you said some of these things help impact terpene profile for me like the end, end consumer of why i would care what someone's growing with and what their innovation that they're trying to be on on the forefront of like do you guys look at that the finished product because obviously your testing facilities on hemp but then your clients facilities are you guys looking at the, the finished product and i know more goes into that in terms of nutrients soil the cure things that are outside of your guys's control but what do you guys, how much do you guys look into that in terms of terpene profile and just the quality of the end product and judge that based on, on how you tweak and, and, and continue to innovate this technology? Yeah, so we look at that all the time. Uh, when we are doing grows in our uh, hemp facility here, we go all the way through harvest, cure. We actually resell the uh, hemp that we grow and we wanna make it a premium product on the market we're always looking to increase those terpene profiles, to increase the uh, CBD and CBG, CBN. And uh, that's one of the things that we've definitely noticed a huge difference in when we are running all of those tests on the final cured flower at the end. Uh, we've had multiple testing facilities now that we've used contact us and say, hey, I've seen, I'm seeing terpenes in what you're giving us that we can't identify. We've not seen these before, but it's in this flower. We don't know what it is, but we can tell you you've got it. And uh, for example, some of the uh, other cannabinoids, the CBG and CBN, we had one testing facility call us up and ask what we were doing because they'd never seen levels that high before. And it, it does come down to a little bit of the nutrients. It definitely has a lot to do with genetics. If you start off with a poor strain that doesn't have good flavor to begin with, our lights may make it better, but we're not going to turn it into caviar or champagne. It's still going to be cheap, crappy wine to begin with. Um, so there's only so much you can do with light, but we're always looking to push those limits. And our goal has always been to make the best grow light that doesn't just pump out tons of, of flour at the end. We also want the quality to be the highest we can get it. Oh, I love that. And so as someone like yourself that's been involved with setting up so many cultivation facilities across the country at this point, um, what are some of the states that stand out to you that you feel like for, could be really for whatever reason, this is kind of a broad question, but what states do you feel like are really getting it right? It could be regulatory wise, it could be quality wise, could be kind of methods and approach, but which states are standing out? And you can be biased and say Colorado if you want, but I'm curious what states stand out to you. I mean, I do think Colorado has done a pretty good job regulatory wise uh, from the, the very beginning. I mean, they, there have been missteps, but uh, Washington went legal the same year that Colorado did, but they were slower in getting things rolled out and they had strict firewalls between the medical and uh, recreational side that were strict enough as to create problems for growers. 
and that created lots of issues there that we didn't see here in Colorado. On the flip side of the coin, you've got a state like Oklahoma, where the regulation is pretty much only now starting to come in there, and it was definitely the Wild West there. There's all sorts of things going on I've seen in Oklahoma that um, would make you lose your license here in Colorado, and rightfully so. Whether it's chemicals that are being used or uh, ways of getting around testing so that you can use those illegal chemicals <laughs> that are being tested for uh, just yeah, Colorado's done a decent job there. I am honestly not terribly familiar with the regulatory landscape across the country now because there are so many states now. Right. It's starting to get difficult for me to keep track of that when I'm usually reading more about new studies on how light affects plants or uh, new efficiency increases of LEDs or things like that. So um, I'm not the one that really keeps track of that. But in terms of quality, uh, I would say that it's not so much one state or another as much as the maturity of the industry in any given state. Typically, when the industry first becomes legal in a state, people are clamoring for product, anything they can get. And lower quality stuff still sells at that point in the industry. And so it's only after the industry starts maturing and people start, as you mentioned yourself, once you tried really good stuff, you didn't want to go back to the cheap, crappy stuff anymore, the, the ditch weed anymore. And so it's more the maturity of the industry in that particular state that I think drives quality. Because as you start getting more and more competition, as long as there is enough competition allowed in that particular state, then consumers will start making the choice with their money based on the quality that they're getting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's definitely something that I've noticed. We're just, we're looking at weed across the country right now and always love to get people's insight on what air, what, what's popping up. What are they seeing? What, what patterns are starting to exist? And I think, you know, you hit it, hit it on the head where as a, as a market matures, so does, you know, I mean, cultivation takes time, right? It's, it's an agricultural cycle to get your first, to get your build out, you know, takes a long time to get your first crop takes time and then to dial your process in, it takes time. So, as a state comes online, you know, it takes two years for people to even dial the, the first movers to even dial in what they're doing. And then obviously as increased competition comes and supply increases, then that's when we really see people start to, to carve well, out quality. And, and some of that has to do with regulatory environment as well. I know when Colorado uh, legalized, they actually allowed growing before they allowed sale because they recognized, Hey, you've got to grow up before you can sell it. Um, so, that probably helped keep the, the quality up here just a little bit. But for example, the first day it was legal to grow or sell in Oklahoma, somehow the dispensaries had product <laughs> on the shelves that first day. Where did that come from? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that didn't go through all the testing that was regulated. So yeah. Yeah, That's I, I wasn't aware of that, but that sounds like Oklahoma. So um man awesome is there anything else before i get you out of here is there anything else about black dog led you'd like the people to know i mean we've been doing this for 11 years now we're one of the oldest led grow light companies in existence at this point and uh i mean we've been able to stick around because we over engineer our lights to ensure that they last i'm still running the original lights i bought 10 years ago 
mm -hmm. uh, for my basement plant room are still running in my plant room and they still work. So uh, we're really in this for the long haul. We're here to support our customers because we don't succeed if our customers fail. We want you to come back and need more lights as you're expanding your facilities uh, because that's how we help grow as well. So we're really customer focused. We're here to support people. We will point out uh, if we see something, hey, you know, it's not light related, but you really need to fix that or you're, you're gonna have problems later. Uh, because we have set up so many facilities at this point and we even run run ourselves. So we know, I mean, we're not perfect by any means, but we know a lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of the little gotchas that people may not necessarily think of. And we think of our customers more as partners in helping them get their facility set up and getting successful. Awesome, man. I love the approach, love the conversation. I definitely learned quite a few things today. Um, so really appreciate you, Kevin, for jumping on here. And if for anyone out there looking to get a hold of them, I, I believe it's blackdogled.com is the website. So check that out. Um, it looks like you guys are pretty open to inquire, you know, people that got inquiries about getting their, their stuff set up. And it's not just commercial growers either. We started off selling to home growers and we still do um, all the time. And we're here to help them succeed as well. We've got tons of video uh, documentaries of grows from beginning to end, documenting how to grow how to deal with issues, uh, everything that you can check out on our website. I think we have more educational material on our website than probably any 200 of our competitors combined because we're here to help anyone of any size succeed at growing. It's really our passion. Hell yeah, I love it. Thank you very much for joining us today, Kevin. This is episode 48 of the North American Weed Tour podcast. Kevin Frender of Black Dog LED. Really appreciate you, man. Thank you very much.